this song for Stalin by Rilski, the lyrics go, We will all rush to the top with the sunshine in our eyes. By the eagle's solar flight, the leader gives us the true sight. The top is reached by climbing up a mountain of millions of bodies. The sunshine is the promise of nuclear war. And the flight, a dangerous social engineering experiment which spread poverty and misery all over the world. The leader was Joseph Stalin, the man of steel, Russia's totalitarian dictator. Yosef Vissarionovich Stalin, who was born Yoseb Bessarionis Ze Jugashvili. Now, those are not the names that we know him by. We call him Joseph Stalin. He was born in 1878, and he was a Georgian revolutionary who led the Soviets into um, the original revolution in Russia, uh, along with Lenin and Trotsky, and eventually emerged as General Secretary of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and Premier, eventually really consolidating power to become the country's de facto dictator in the 1930s. A communist ideologically committed to the Leninist interpretation of Marxism, Stalin formalized these ideas as Marxism-Leninism, while his own policies were known as Stalinism. And for people who are on the left of politics, these definitions really matter. To us, it's a matter of, you know, small differences. So today we focus on one of the bad guys of history, and he has got, um, by uh, quite a margin, a worse reputation than he has a good one. There are parts of modern Russia where they still look at Stalin as a great leader and someone who we could all aspire to be more like. But in most of the world, we regard him as something of a genocidal, dictatorial lunatic. Do you agree with that, Anthony Medra? My co-host for the series and also the MD of Taylor Blinds and Shutters. What do you think of uh, Joseph Stalin? So, Gareth, this is our, our third run of blind history, and this guy's the worst. So, <laughs> the absolute worst. So you're saying he's worse than Ivan the Terrible? He's worse than Mao? He's worse than Pol Pot? Or is he just the worst that we've done so far? In general, I think he's probably the worst. If we just look at who we've done, I just thought the Kims were absolutely crazy. And I mean, this old Stalin is, they look like babies to him. I mean, Adolf looks like Mother Teresa to him. Yeah, I mean, we, we can do a death count here if you'd like, because we are in a time of corona and maybe people are interested in how many have died. And Stalin is reckoned to have killed uh, well over 12, maybe even 20. Some estimates say over 40 million people in the early stages of his ascent to power. And later on in the collectivized camps, in assassinations, the removal of people who disagreed with him politically, those numbers just inflate to a point where you really don't know whether you're dealing with actual human lives or a balance sheet. And that doesn't even take into account the Second World War because um, his victories were more about uh, sheer numbers than actual military brilliance. And I think in the Second World War, 65% of the Red Army was killed or taken in as prisoners of wars, which is a massive amount. Yeah, it's frightening. You, you know, it's what they call a Pyrrhic victory, which is something which comes up in history quite a lot. A Pyrrhic victory where you win, for all intents and purposes, you have conquered the enemy or you've beaten them, but it's at huge cost. 
And you almost look back on those kinds of battles and wars and you think, was it worth it? Russia has never really managed to get back to the population numbers that they had before the communist revolution in World War II. And although there were many people who were impoverished in those times, you could argue that their population decline and the fact that they currently have a population crisis is as a direct result of what's been happening over the last hundred years. But interestingly enough, um, Stalin did a census and it was very important for him to prove to the world and to his people that what he was doing was successful and it was great to live in Russia and it's growing and expanding. And I think he did the census in 1932. And what happened was he estimated a certain population size and the census came back significantly less than what he predicted. So he just took them and shot them all the census crew. And then a year later, he did a new one. And can you believe it? But that was exactly what he predicted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, surprise. Yeah. Um, let's, let's start off because this guy has a very interesting story. And by no means is he to be ignored. You know, I think his great biographer wrote that he was probably the single most influential person of the 20th century. And I don't know that that's too much of a grab because if you look at how much was achieved by Russia during Stalin's time and how much he as a single person affected and influenced the history of the world, I think it's fair to say that he's certainly in the top three and, and his biographers say he's number one. So let's start at the beginning because his, his origins are quite interesting too. He was born in Georgia, not in Russia, and he was considered more Asiatic than Russian. Of course, he later on became known and identified as a Russian man, but he always had a slight Georgian accent, and his beginnings were very much in uh, religion. So he grew up in a very rough town, Gori, which wasn't too far from Tiflis, which was the capital of Georgia, which was part of Russia at the time. And his mom was a charismatic lady, and it just so happened that Biso, who, who was Stalin's dad, he was sort of quite defined in Gori for a small period of time. They got married and he ended up being a drunk that beat Stalin and was actually incredible that he actually survived. It was, it was a horrible upbringing with Biso the drunk, but his mom was a very strong character and she actually liked men's company and men found her very attractive to such an extent that Stalin sometimes mentioned that Biso wasn't his dad, but this, somebody else was his dad. And his mother also disciplined him. She used to beat him, but it was more from a looking after you, trying to make you a good boy and successful side of it. But Gareth, he was very, very intelligent. And I think a lot of people didn't say that, especially after Stalin died during the de-Stalinization process. He was a remarkable student and very successful. He sang beautifully. He wrote beautiful poetry. Yeah, that's right. He He was... You know, although he got into some fights when he was much younger, he also excelled, as you say, academically. He displayed talent in painting, drama. He wrote his own poetry. As you mentioned, too, he sang as a choir boy. But talking about that, there was such an enigma because Gori, as I said, was such a, a rough and tough town. And they used to have organized brawls. And, you know, he won a lot of brawls. He won as much as he lost. He was a small guy. But he he was very, very tough, and he was a natural leader in those very, very early days. Yeah, he also um, had some health problems. I mean, he had smallpox when he was a kid. It left him with facial pox scars, which they had to airbrush out of every party poster later on when he became the dictator. But at 12 years old, he was actually injured. He was hit by a, a carriage, 
and it actually caused a lifelong disability to his left arm, which prevented him from active military service. Yeah, I think it shortened his left arm. It was quite severe, and he was down and out for quite a long time. And that made a big difference. I think the fact that he was only five foot three, and he had um, his second and third toe, I think, on his left foot were joined. So he had a web foot, which was the sign of the devil at that time. And yeah, there were a few challenges and inferiorities that he took through. And then later on, because he was always on the run and he was caught from time to time and he got rotten teeth from being in Siberia for so long. And so he also had black teeth. So that was another thing that he was quite embarrassed about. Well, we'll talk about how he ended up in Siberia, but the guy, he didn't have the greatest start in life. And he decided to join the monastery. He was going to become a priest and, and went into the seminary in Tiflis, which you've already mentioned. And uh, he was very good at, at learning, but he professed himself quite soon as an atheist. He used to stalk out of prayers. He refused to doff his hat to the monks, and they eventually threw him out. He joined a forbidden book club, which was interesting, because obviously the revolutionary in him was starting to come to the fore, and started reading about Marxism and joined a group called the Georgian Socialist Group, the Mesamedasi. And then he left the seminary and never returned. And that was the beginning of his political career, really. So how did he end up in Siberia? So at that period that you mentioned, he set up a gang of hitmen, money launderers, racketeering, piracy. I mean, they pirated ships in the Caspian in the Black Sea, (laughs) bank robber, extortion, and murder. I mean, these things, he could have been John Gotti. It was incredible. And he got physically involved in a lot of these things and stole millions. I think the one bank robbery was 3.4 million US dollars. And he took it all to the Bolshevik party, to Lenin's coffers, you know, to support the revolution and kept none of it for himself. So he always wore the same clothes and this poor man, but he was such an enigma. I mean, he could have been one of the richest gangsters this world has ever seen. Yeah. And then... He would throw it, as you say, at the party, and and his ultimate goal was political power. It wasn't financial wealth. So he obviously got caught, and then they sent him off, as was the custom in Russia at the time, to Siberia, where you were basically in exile. And, I mean, he was in the cold. He used to get frostbite. It was a very unpleasant place to be. He was basically up near the Arctic Circle. And didn't he get some 13-year-old girl pregnant? Correct, yes. He liked the younger ladies. There's no doubt. And in this particular instance, yes, um, he did get a pregnant 13-year-old. And then true to his form, when Lenin and things happened in 1917 and he managed his escape, he just left her. He was not known for being a particularly um, thoughtful husband or boyfriend. And as you say, he eventually managed to escape. And he got to St. Petersburg and to Moscow just in time to really join in the revolution, which had got into full swing. But the important events of the revolution He's been recorded as having been central to them, although a lot of people post his death have tried to make it look like, especially the Trotskyite side of Russian Bolshevism, they tried to make it look like he didn't really play a very integral role. Gareth, they said he basically missed the revolution, which in in large part is true in that he was in Siberia up at the Arctic. The thing with Trotsky was he was a very arrogant, outgoing, loud person. Whereas Stalin was different, he could work the underground. And they were enemies. So anything that Trotsky said was going to be bad about Stalin, and I suppose the other way around. But ultimately, in the end, he, he was significantly involved. He was sent to Siberia four times. 
but the whole time he was supporting and bankrolling Lenin. So he had been around for a significant amount of time. Yeah, I believe that when they eventually managed to form a government, he and Trotsky were the only two people who were allowed into Lenin's study without an appointment. And at that stage, I think Stalin was mostly in charge of food provisions. So he would try to secure the food provisions for the World War I armies. But World War I was kind of a sideshow to what was going on inside Russia, because although they were imperiled and made non-aggression pacts here and there, the, the real game for, for Stalin, Lenin, and Trotsky was to get Russia behind them and to really take control. And that meant stamping out opposition. He was also the editor of the Pravda newspaper, um, which was their chief piece of propaganda. And it's still the most famous piece of communist literature. But Stalin wasn't a, a fool. And he, he used to he used to write some pretty interesting articles, most especially around the different kinds of ethnic nationalities within Russia and how all of them, in his opinion, deserved a fair amount of autonomy and self-governance. But his writings did upset Lenin quite a bit. I think originally he apologized, but he had quite a bit of runnings with Lenin. And I think you're talking definitely about this time where things were really getting heated and about to happen. And Lenin was very concerned about he needed a fall side to, to Trotsky's arrogance and snobbery. And so he thought Stalin was the right man. But then a little bit later on, because he appointed him general secretary, which is a position he held till a year before he died. But I think that Lenin started realizing that, sure, this guy, that for the position that he's in, he cannot stay in that position. And he really started considering removing him from that general secretary position. And Stalin started to feel it. But I think the timing was incredible because um, Lenin started, I think he had three strokes and he had already had his first stroke. And Lenin's wife started to speak out against Stalin. Right. And then Stalin phoned her and called her syphilitic whore to, uh, <laughs> over the phone. And, yeah. And, and Lenin heard about this and then basically said to him, look, um, if you do not apologize and make things clear, then I think it's the end of the line between you and me. And then the next day, he basically had the worst um, stroke and died just after that. And I think Stalin spent a bit of time making sure he squashed that discussion. Yeah, it's famously been recorded that Stalin and Krupskaya, who was Lenin's wife, were not best of friends. And she actually released a whole lot of Lenin's letters, which purport to say that Stalin is not a great guy. He's got bad manners. He's too coarse. He's too rough. He's vulgar. He's rude. And that he shouldn't lead. Um, but a lot of people say that she might have written these letters. I think in the end, there was no love lost. And unfortunately, if you didn't have a good relationship with Stalin, you were dead. And I think that she ended up like that. So he took over then after Lenin, but it was by no means an easy job because he had to make alliances with some dodgy people and then break those alliances later on, ultimately with the goal of establishing himself at the center of things. He was not interested in you know, a communal decision-making body. He wanted to make the calls. Yeah, 100%. I mean, a dictator is what his ideal was. And I think it was quite easy because Trotsky was looking at the Marxist collective in the whole world, whereas Stalin was saying to his supporters, look, we're looking at it, the Soviet Union. And so he got strong support and Trotsky didn't get the support that he thought he would get. And him and Lenin's wife set up a party and tried to go against Stalin and that was the ultimate demise of Trotsky. He was sent into exile, and later on, Stalin sent somebody to go and murder him with an ice pick. Yeah, another famous death. 
But I do want to breeze quickly through the years before World War II because that's where Stalin really came to uh, aggregate immense power around himself. But he went through a number of crises. I mean, the one that's most well known is that famine and the collectivization of farming where he murdered the kulaks and, you know, the great terror as it's called also, which was the execution of some 700,000 people who we know about. There are many more that we don't know about. There are mass graves all over Russia of people who he called detractors, neoliberals, people who had disagreements with him at a, at a community level and a local level. So the guy was at his most bloodthirsty before World War II. And he really just tore up anyone who was in his way. Um, and, and was merciless at that point. The fact is that a, a massive famine came about as a result of his destruction of Kulak farming. The Kulaks were like middle class bourgeois landowners, and he just confiscated their property and set up the Sovkos and Kolkos farms, collective farms. It was a disaster. People were were starving all over Russia. And uh, Gareth, what they did, though, initially the farmers, they, they decided to burn the equipment, burn their crops, because they refused to hand it over to the state. Anyway, that just played into Stalin's hands, and he did do this collectivization. And what was very, very sad was that he exported a significant amount and everybody was starving in, in Russia, and he was still exporting. The amount of people that died was just absolutely frightening because of this famine. And it was this man-made famine that was set up by Stalin. Yeah, I, I think, you know, by this stage, most of the, the bad side of his reputation was unknown to the rest of the world because he had such a stranglehold on information and propaganda. You know, these are the days before mass communication, the internet, telephones, any of that stuff. So it was hard for people who were against Stalin to ever be heard. And that worked obviously in his favor. So World War II comes along. And the first thing that Stalin does is he makes a pact with Nazi Germany, the Ribbentrop Pact. Von Ribbentrop was the, um, the German foreign minister under Hitler. And this was maybe counterintuitive, but for Stalin, it was a way of just keeping things in, in a very delicate balance because he didn't want to fight Germany. He was ideologically opposed to them and, and to the West, frankly. But he knew at this stage that a non-aggression pact was what he would probably need so that he could build up his defenses. The war part was very interesting. Um, as you rightly said, he had, did have a non-aggression pact with Germany. But, you know, Adolf Hitler would do whatever he wanted. And his plan was to infiltrate and go into Russia. And the West warned Stalin informers warned Stalin, his own spies warned him, and that he just basically said, look, you guys are crazy, you don't know what you're talking about. And then there was a somebody that deserted Germany and came into Russia and said, listen, on the 22nd of June, Germany's going to invade Russia. And he still didn't believe them. He shot that deserter. And <laughs> then he realized as Hitler started to mobilize, he said, no, 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 Hitler's going to come at us through Ukraine because it's full of oil-rich lands, and that's the way he's going to come. His general said, no, no. What was left of his generals, because he'd purged most of the good generals prior to, to the war, they said, look, he's going to come in through Minsk in the north, and then Moscow is going to be open. So he stuck fast. They sent the Red Army down to the south, and Hitler took Minsk and had a free road basically all the way to Moscow, and a quarter of the Russian air force was obliterated by the, the Luftwaffe. All the airplanes were standing in long lines on the ground because they weren't expecting war. 
Yeah. So it was just, it was incredible. There was a massive mistake. And Gareth, this was also quite a big turning point because after this, he started to defer. If there was one time in his life that he did defer, it was to the, to the, the generals at the time. But this was just after he said to them, Lenin started our state, but you guys have just fucked it up. Well, I know that the one military commander he did trust at that point is General Zhukov, who was a war hero. He was probably the most famous Russian general of World War II. And although Stalin had some good ideas, I think he also realized his own shortcomings as a military leader. And increasingly, he did rely on good advice. And slowly but surely, and at great expense in terms of the number of men whose lives were sacrificed and the amount of distance covered and territory, frankly, that was lost, Russia started to to beat the Germans back. They also had a scorched earth policy, which had been practiced, uh, you know, a hundred and something years before under Napoleon, where basically they just burnt and destroyed everything as they left. Without those supplies and and food and warmth, the Germans advancing had nothing to rely on. Their supply chain was getting longer and longer, so it made it impossible for them to win. And eventually. The Russians famously um, managed to beat back the Germans. And with uh, alliances between them, the French, the Americans, and the British, they started to uh, turn the tide of the war. The Eastern Front had become Russia's to lose, and they started to push into Germany. Yeah, and I think that British came from the West. The Russians came from the East towards Berlin. Hitler saw the writing on the wall and committed suicide. And the people absolutely raved about it. And Stalin was this massive hero. He'd uh, taken Russia to victory, or the Soviet Union, should I say. And it was a very, very strong time for Stalin in terms of his popularity. He was obsessed with Hitler, though, and he actually made sure that they found whatever they could of Hitler's remains and brought them back to Moscow. He didn't want them making a shrine out of it in, in Germany. But I think we, we eventually got to see what evidence he had collected only about you know 10 to 15 years ago when Russia opened up properly. Um, he was obsessed with Hitler, and the two of them were kind of ideological opponents, but I think they had a grudging respect for each other. But Gareth, you know that the difference between Stalin and Hitler, I suppose, was that Hitler, you know, he had the Aryan race he was trying to build, etc., and he would discriminate heavily against anybody that didn't fit that mold, whereas Stalin didn't discriminate. Uh, he didn't care. He killed anybody and everybody. It could be his best friend or his worst enemy. He didn't discriminate. So let's just talk about Stalin and another great man of history. Uh, in fact, two of them, Roosevelt and Churchill, because the three of them were the big three, right? They met at Yalta, they met in Tehran, and famously, they put together what the post-war world would look like. And Churchill didn't get along with Stalin. <laughs> Rightly so, I can imagine. I think Stalin was trying to strong arm. A lot of reports, was, he felt like he had the upper ground. And he really was prescribing serious acquisition of land and countries. And that's, I think, when the rift started to appear between the West and the, the USSR. Yeah, and Stalin made all kinds of demands about, you know, ideological influence over Eastern Europe. And, and it was shortly after that, in the early 1950s, that Churchill famously made his Iron Curtain comment. But at that point, there were two spheres of influence. There was the sphere of American influence and the sphere of Russian influence, communist influence. And Britain no longer really mattered by that stage. And Stalin had a big idea of influencing not just all of Eastern Europe, but China, North Korea. Um, you know, the Korean War had been entered into fairly shortly after World War II. And Russia was the, the big daddy 
of the Eastern Bloc. Yes, so the Iron Curtain falls and he was adamant that all the countries will be satellite states of the Soviet Union. And even to that effect, cutting Berlin in half. I mean, that was just frightening. And Gareth, I suppose that was the development of the Soviet Union's version of the atomic bomb, which kick-started the famous Cold War, which started to begin in earnest then. Now, it's interesting to know that he died in 1953, but from about 1950, he was in very poor health. And he lived mostly at his dasha, which was you know, like his country house. It wasn't too far from the Kremlin. That's actually where he died. He was found dead on the floor of his bedroom. He'd suffered from a cerebral hemorrhage. And he lay there for three days. He hadn't died yet. They only announced his death like six days after that. And there was so much confusion when he died because this guy was absolutely the most powerful man without any threat to his authority from anywhere. And they didn't know who should take over. And there was this coterie of these bizarre men around him, you know, Zukov, the general, there was Molotov, who was his deputy. There was his daughter, Svetlana. Uh, they made a very funny movie of this just two or three years ago, which is hilarious. And as much as it's funny, that's probably what actually happened. No one knew who would take over. Yeah. And even Beira, the head of the secret police, he was there. And the day before, he was kissing Stalin on his hand, and the next day, he spat on his hand. So it was just crazy because he thought then he could take over from where Stalin was. But from his grave, it was absolute chaos until Khrushchev finally took over and started the de-Stalinization process. Well, Khrushchev may have done a de-Stalinization, but when Brezhnev came in, he started a re-Stalinization. And even today, you know, Putin is loath to criticize Stalin. There are Obviously, things that are now indisputable about just how much of a terror he was. But um, they did dig him up. Then they moved him because he was originally in the mausoleum with Lenin. And they eventually just put him next to the wall under a little bust. And his legacy is very much like his actual visage, pockmarked and difficult to interpret entirely. We don't know much about his personality because he was a political creature, but he, he loved his friends. He liked having his friends around. He certainly seems to have been affectionate with his daughter. Uh, we know about his scruffy appearance and the kind of clothing he used to wear. But apparently he had a very soft voice and read furiously. He had like a library of 20,000 books. Yeah, he could read 500 pages a day or something crazy like that. Yeah, and he publicly condemned things like anti-Semitism and didn't necessarily like uh, the idea of discrimination, although he practiced that in various ways, shapes, and forms as a dictator. And ultimately, his legacy has to be seen as one of just immense power accumulation and no respect whatsoever for the individual. It was all about what could collectively be done. He saw people as units within a massive machine and didn't care how many of those units had to be either lost in war executed for disagreeing with him. And I think overwhelmingly, totalitarianism has had its purest expression in the character of Joseph Stalin. Yeah, and I think, Gareth, that he needed a forum. I mean, he had brains. He was extremely confident and intelligent. He had proper political talents. If you look at the spies that he put into America, you know, to find out and to build industrialization of USSR, he had faith in and also very much experience in violence. He just knew how to get things done through violence. But he was also charming, sensitive, ruthless. He had a lack of empathy a lot of the times. 
and he was just weird, but there's so many attributes coming together and it's just almost like the perfect storm in 1917 this individual could apply all of these attributes into forming this dictator yeah i mean maybe in a thousand years from now they'll look on him like we look on alexander the great or one of those people but certainly one of the most brutal people to have ever walked the earth and also a hugely impressive historical figure so as much as you and i don't necessarily like him we have to grudgingly give the guy a huge amount of respect for what he managed to do, horrible as some of it was. To have the balls to do that is just something else. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whenever Stalin, during his most powerful times, used to go out to these massive factories and give speeches or wherever he gave speeches, he wasn't a great orator, people had to clap. And if you stop clapping, sometimes you could end up being shot or sent to Siberia. And there was this one instance where there was a director of the company after 11 minutes of clapping, stopped clapping. And so he was <laughs> sent for 10 years to Siberia. So Stalin, in the end, introduced a little bell where people could stop clapping, and they knew when to stop clapping without getting murdered. 